And I'm gonna keep it tight because it's quite hot without air conditioning on. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I am joined by my co-host, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Who also turned off his air condition so you won't hear it on the recording, and it is hot in here. And a post-Broadway Joshua Molina. Back in Los Angeles, out of work, and it's balmy. No humidity. <laughs> I'd rather have a job in humidity, but I'll take what I can. Today on the show, we have two Jews of the week. No Gentiles allowed here on this show today. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize it was policy. Okay. Well, just this week, we're straying from our... You, you didn't see the sign on the door? <laughs> no Gentiles allowed? I'm out of town. First, we're bringing you an interview with Dikla Kedar, creator of the Israeli TV show The Lesson, which we are very obsessed with right now. Then we chat with Binyamin Cohen, who returns to the show to talk about his new book, The Einstein Effect, how the world's favorite genius got into our cars, our bathrooms, and our minds. And Stephanie, you have just now very nicely pronounced two Hebrew names. I'm very proud of you. Binyamin. And Dikla, thank you for seeing us. Though, I think it's important to note that Binyamin Cohen lives in like West Virginia. And you're pronouncing it in the West Virginian manner. <laughs> but but Josh, you're back in LA, like the show's over. What's going on? What are you up to? It's all horrible. <laughs> no, I'm having a, a bit, of, I'm happy to be back in LA, happy to see my family, my wife and son, my daughter, I left back in New York where she goes to school. And I miss doing the play. Although I will say, I am very, very good at compartmentalizing. I think actually our listeners will be delighted. I think I'm going to stop talking about the play now that I'm not in it. (laughs) I'll transition into talking about other things. But I will say for this last time, I miss it. Come seven or eight o'clock, depending on what day, I think, you know, last week, I was on stage in a on Broadway in a Stoppard play. You're like, is it Kristallnacht time yet? Right. When when do the Nazis knock? Yeah, I don't seize up when the, uh, there's a knock at the door anymore. Is it weird not having someone come to do hair and makeup for you every day? Well, look at me. You look amazing. <laughs> on my own, I clearly make no attempt. I really loved your tweet in which you said, you know, you're you're looking for jobs. You could play a lawyer or a different lawyer with a slightly different personality than the first lawyer. (laughs) Yeah, I just lay it out there. I just say it like it is. But it is true. You say you're never late. And since we've met, I've been really impressed. You are always early. You're about 10 to 15 minutes early for everything. This is actually my, I I have to credit, again, our Once Upon a Time Gentile of the Week, Aaron Neal, who said, to be a successful actor, you have to be two of three things. Prepared with your dialogue, on time, and good. If you're prepared and you know your dialogue, like I am, you can you can eke out a living. If you're good and on time, you can get away with not knowing your lines so well. If you're good and you know your lines, you can show up late a little bit. But you have to be at least two of those three things. And I, I know which two I am. Well, I am on time. So I'm, uh, I'm about a third of the way to glory. And I am not on time. But I do, I want to bring us a bit of timely conversation. Are you guys watching The Bear? Oh, I'm behind. I've watched the first couple episodes and loved it, but I lost track of it. I got to go back and start again. So I want to bring something up. It's not a spoiler. There's like a micro plot point surrounding the idea of Jewish lightning. Ooh. That is a thing I have never, a phrase I have never heard before. But do you guys know what that is? No. I indeed do. Enlighten the immigrant, please. I believe, maybe I'm wrong, I believe it is the suggestion that arson being done by (laughs) Jews in order to collect on insurance. Yes, basically the idea that like shifty Jews want to get money for their property and so therefore light it on fire, burn it down. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Someone uses that phrase to describe something that may have happened on the show and everyone of course is like, that's 
you cannot say that. But I was just like, Jewish lightning. Like, one of the things I love about the bear is that it's so not Jewish. It's not related to my work life. You just get like the Catholic stuff. Like, it's it's great. And then they're like, but Jewish lightning. And I literally look at Ben. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. It's like one of those things where you're like, am I supposed to be offended by this? If I may feed the canard and do exactly the opposite of probably what I should be trying to do. My grandfather, may he rest in peace, who was a lovely honest, wonderful businessman, knew a colorful bunch of characters. And I believe one of them, and I'll have to ask my dad about this, I believe one of them was a professional arsonist. And uh, at the end of his life, he was able to say triumphantly and proudly, uh, 274 fires never lost a life. He was a Jewish lightning starter. Wow. As with many stereotypes, (laughs) there might be some truth, painting with broad strokes. So Joshua Molina, I see your grandfather's arsonist, and I raise you my wife's grandmother, who has since passed away, but whose favorite story was that when she was a teenager, her best friend, whose name, according to Recollection, was either Bubby or Booby. I'm going to go with number two there because I think it's much funnier. And Booby one day went to visit her friend, my wife's grandmother, said, oh, you know, you guys are in a bit of a pickle. Don't worry, leave it to me. And the next morning, her store burned down. So, yay. There you go. I didn't know that it was associated with Jews because the first time and the only time I've actually seen this was on The Sopranos, where the restaurateur is in some financial trouble and all of a sudden his brand new restaurant burns down suspiciously. He's, of course, very good friends with Tony Soprano. So, like, it wasn't like, oh, that's Italian lightning. I would never have extrapolated that far. But it's funny to be like, oh, this one's us, too. We get this one. Every background has its lightning. And can we rewrite Grease Lightning to be about Jewish lightning? I love it. Somebody, some listener get on that. Greasy Jews with greasy hair. But uh, (laughs) listen, I have something that I think upsets many more Jews. Because this week, as we speak, a brand new social media platform has been launched. It, as of this morning, has 100 million users because you're automatically on it if you're on Instagram because it's run by Facebook. Stephanie, would you tell us the name of this social media platform? A Twitter killer, if you will. According to all of my social media, I've been seeing this everywhere. It's called Threads, right? Threads? Correct. Oh, I've been, pronounce- I've been pronouncing it Threads. I'm glad we had this conversation. Speaking of pronunciation, it is very difficult because Hebrew, alas, lacks the soft TH sound. And therefore, my friends in the startup nation back in the (laughs) high tech in Israel are having a complete meltdown about whether it should be pronounced treads, freds, (laughs) or sreds, which is, I suggested that they go with the bakery and just call it breads, which is, you know, a a lovely bakery here. But it really kind of brought to mind the fact it's like, why is it so difficult for so many of my landsmen, of my countrymen, to pronounce things like we don't have trouble as Americans pronouncing, you know, the N-Y-A sound or a bunch of foreign sound, umlaut sound, sounds that like we don't have in our language. Why is it so hard for Israelis, do we think, to just say uh, threads? Threads. That's so sad. Are you all on? On threads? I am not on threads. I can't even pronounce the threads. Should unorthodox get on threads right now? I think so. Threads also feels Jewish. It feels Jewish, Taylor. Yeah, yeah. It's like a shmata. I mean, if enough of us us log on, if enough of us subscribe, we'll have a shmata. So one one day our grandchildren be like, uh, when my grandfather was in the threads business, (laughs) it was a very decent time. Grandpa Zuck. (laughs) Zadie Zuck. Speaking of Israelis and their many disagreements on ways to do things, today we are going to be talking about The Lesson. It's a new Israeli TV show that stars Daron Ben-David, Steve from Fauda. 
and is a show that we are really, really into right now. And I think we should say explicitly, having recorded an ad for it before I had ever watched it, I'm relieved that it's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Because they advertised on our show, and it's always nice when the thing you're advertising and saying is so good actually is so good. Yes, and the show The Lesson is available right now on Hyflix. Hyflix is sponsoring this discussion, but we promise you the show is actually really good. We would not be doing this. We would have not said yes to this if we didn't genuinely like the show and think that talking about it and seeing it could sort of help us have broader conversations, the kinds we're always trying to have here. It is not only fantastic for people who are interested in Israeli content and just who like watching Israeli shows and like watching Israelis yell at each other in Hebrew, but it's really kind of a, I think, an an unbelievably timely show for Americans to watch right now because it is all about what happens when the sort of bond of civic society begin to fray a little bit and what happens when we have conversations that feel so fraught that they turn families against one another, that they rip asunder entire communities. It is a really exquisitely well-done show, which really frustratingly has no good guys or bad guys. It kind of leaves you seeing everyone's point of view before we launch into our prolonged discussion of the show and the many good points that it raises, even for people who haven't yet watched it, I will give a brief synopsis. Sure, yeah, tell us what it's about. As resident Israeli, I tell you what this is about. So the show starts at an Israeli high school in the beautiful city of Kfar Saba, the Pittsburgh of Israel, if you will, in which a civics teacher named Amir, uh, who is idealistic and sort of gray-bearded but still youthful in spirit, tries to teach a class about how to have a, a debate, just how to have an argument. And one student who was kind of riled up from an incident the day before in which a bunch of Arab youth harassed one of her girlfriends at the local pool says, how about I argue? How about I make an argument that no Arabs should be allowed in the pool? The teacher, of course, is horrified by this blatant example of of racism and rebukes the student. And of course, this being the age of TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, threads as well. Uh, (laughs) The student takes online and shames the teacher, from which unfurls an entire and extremely dramatic and very fraught set of relationships. It's six episodes, each around 40 minutes, and it raises a lot of really great salient points because, for example, one of the students in the class had his brother almost killed in a Palestinian terrorist attack and feels very, very passionately and heatedly, has very kind of strong anti-Arab sentiments. Army service comes into it. Morality comes into it. Politics comes into it. Family ties come into it. And it is really... A great show. Stephanie, Joshua, what what did you think? So this is so interesting because I was watching it and like in the first episode, you basically see an altercation, a disagreement, let's say, between a teacher and a student. Student goes home, films the video, posts it, waits for it to sort of pick up. And then a lot of this is sort of uh, mediated back and forth on social media. There's footage of the, the teacher. There's like all this stuff. And I kept thinking, this is such an American story, right? This feels like this could be happening here where Someone says, you know, you take out your phone at literally name the place and you film something that you think is wrong and then you put it on the internet and there are sort of really, really far-ranging effects and consequences. But at the same time, it's such an Israeli concept because it's like these kids on the precipice of army, like it's both so specific and so universal that I just thought it was interesting. And I kept thinking to myself, honestly, I wonder what Liel thinks about this because these are a bunch of teens 
But they're about to have, what is the day called when the, the soldiers come to the school? Oh, yeah. The, the idea of prep day. Look, I was blown away by it, first of all, because watching it, I really felt like the main character, the high school student, Leon, it felt to me like the show was basically about me. Uh, like her, I was a, surprise, surprise, very rambunctious, bad student, very opinionated, very warlike presence with a lot of zest and a lot of appetite to start big political fights. Unlike her, I was not back then on the right. I was pretty much on the far left. But I love nothing more than to challenge the principal and the teachers with kind of big ideological standpoints, which brings me to the thing that is really, I think, the show gets so incredibly well. Look, if you are an American high school student, right, the most interesting thing that you could say is like, oh, yeah, like I'm, I'm pre-med. If you're an Israeli teenager, you're not pre-med. You're, pardon the pun, you're potentially pre-dead. You're there because you're about to don uniform and actually go into the line of fire in three months, six months, eight months. And the teachers know that. And they respect you for it because they understand that these arguments that you're having, you're not just shouting at them because you're a hormonal teen and you're trying to figure out your worldview, man. And in five months, you'll be on the quad playing hacky sack. You're doing it because you're actually trying to find out, hey, is it, is it, is it worthwhile to give my life for this thing? Do I need to go fight? What do I believe? This is a very big ask. And the adults are in this like unbelievably precarious position, which, of course, I did not understand. When I was a teenager, but of course now, I totally understand. You've done this yourself. You've lived through this. You understand in a way that the kids don't, the whole idea of mortality. You understand that it's not just a game. Oh, I want to go to this unit or that unit. But like, yeah, you could actually die. And I've seen a lot of people to whom this happened. And it's the most horrendous, heartbreaking thing you can never recover from. And at the same time, there's nothing that you could say or do that sort of instills this wisdom in these kids. And so you feel a sense of frustration and a sense of compassion and a sense of dread and you want to help them. And yet at the same time, they are so full of vigor and, and sometimes malice and always hormones. It is a very different situation than I think American kids. And it's really interesting from a, a screenwriting standpoint. And then there's also like the fact that they're just teenagers, right? And there's like right. a crush and it you see this idea of like, I still want to be liked. I still want to be popular. I'm so uncomfortable in who I am because I'm 17 and I'm not yet fully myself. I mean, I think that these kids are sort of, they put their money where their mouth is in a way that like as American for whom, you know, serving in the military was never really something on my radar. Just so different. I like that they didn't lose the... Uh, the horny teens. <laughs> yeah, the, the personal aspect of it. In fact, the sort of inciting incident where she uh, releases the video wide comes as a result of this boy that she sort of likes and has a little bit of a crush on encouraging her to do so. She had feel, been feeling not great about this anti-teacher video she had made and was, I think, thinking of scrapping it. And I like that... It it was a personal relationship that led her to make a, a, a very fateful decision. Just imagine that, like, you know, 16 and a half year old me with, by the way, a platinum blonde mohawk. And I sadly have some photographic Ooh. evidence to, to support that point. Wearing torn jeans and blazers and listening to Fugazi and like other kind of like cool punk rock bands, man. By which I mean to say a total hot mess, you know, <laughs> someone who really doesn't know. But anything. hot is the important thing. You were yeah. hot. The hot was important then, but the mess is important in retrospect because you look at this kid like, wow, you don't know anything about the world, but even more importantly about yourself. And the place where we're going to send you to figure shit out 
isn't Stanford where you could just like chill and like try on communism or libertarianism or whatever it is that you want to play act for a while until you figure out the world and, and grow up. The place we're going to send you to figure yourself out and everything else out is combat, which teaches you super fast. But just thinking about that, that moment of standing on the precipice of, of adulthood and knowing that you're going to be thrown into the whirlwind, it really brought me back, man. No one in Israel could afford to be a recreational liberal or recreational conservative. You're actually expected to be deeply involved. There's, there's a kind of like a blink and you miss it scene in which an opportunistic local politician gives a talk uh, at a rally and, and praises the student for bringing what he calls an important issue to the public agenda. But it really kind of captured, I think, beautifully the still very strong ethos in, in Israeli society in which to not be very involved, to not be an activist, to not have a strong, staunch opinion and, and act on it is almost, to use the, the highest derogatory term, is really uncool. Like you are expected to be a person with values, with virtues, with fire in their belly, who goes out there and seeks change in the world. That is, that's the baseline. And it captures it very nicely. And I think the reason for that is because really, honestly, you can't afford to not have an opinion. That's a question I had for you, Liel, as our resident Israeli. One of the things that struck me as different from the U.S. is the teacher sharing his political views so freely. And is that the reality in Israel as compared to here, where I think now we get very, parents get very touchy about anything being said by a teacher that suggests that he or she has any political thoughts? It's a great question. So first of all, as listeners will soon hear in our conversation with the show's creator, Dikla Kedar, the series is inspired very loosely by a real-life case in which a teacher who was very liberal shared his views in class, and one student sort of shamed him online, and it became a whole kind of national kerfuffle. But I, I think you're absolutely right. The conversation between teachers and students in Israel is of a very different nature. First of all, there's no miss this or Mr. That. It's always first name basis with everyone, including the principal, including, you know, that any is Israeli. so Israeli. Plus, teachers are are very, very, very open and they encourage the type of conversation that you really, having now taught in, in universities for a, for a spell, you would really never find in American schools because it's not just a teacher sharing their own political views, but a teacher actually really encouraging students to try out their own ideas and their own sentiments and kind of bring that all out to the open because it's not considered, well, that is not part of the curricular activity. It's like the, the point of the curricular activity is to fashion involved, engaged, and passionate citizens. Not consumers, not taxpayers, not people who just pay tuition and then go along to Goldman Sachs or whatever, but people who are very soon will be called to sacrifice their utmost. You have this platonic ideal of a raucous, respectful-ish, right? But like heated, passionate conversation. And it almost feels like more and more we don't, I don't even know if we. anyone was really doing that when I was in college because you like wanted to say the thing that the teacher wanted to hear, whatever it was. It wasn't like a political ideological thing. It was just like you wanted to get the answer right. I wonder if broadly we're moving away from that kind of like really open, safe, right? In all the real ways where you can say the things that maybe are boundary pushing and then get pushback on them. The notion that there is a right answer and you're somehow expected to parrot it to your teacher is so incredibly foreign and anathema to Israelis. It's it's not even funny. Like I, my civics teacher was this hardcore older 
socialist named Yaakov Roth, he would walk into the class, he would say the most incendiary thing that he could think of, and then he would pick the two or three students, I almost said citizens, which would have been a great Freudian slip, in the class who he knew would have the most kind of insightful and completely contradictory things to say. It's like, Liel, what do you think? And I would say my crazy thing is like, Shai, what do you think? And Shai, who's a resident right-winger, would say what he would think, uh, and, and then we would get into it. But that was an amazing, as we say, chavruta, an amazing kind of way to argue your way into meaning. And, and it wasn't about finding common ground and agreement. It was about kind of hashing out the points of view so everyone could see, if you believe X, this is what you believe, which the teacher in the show does very beautifully. I wonder if that's why Israel is making such good TV, too. I wonder if that cultural Ooh. difference about getting into things and digging into things explains to me. Because I was wondering, I, I wonder why... I watch series after series coming from Israel, such a small country, and I'm blown away by the art they're putting out. I think that's a great point. Look, hearing you say that, I'm, I'm then inspired to think in, in reverse. Maybe part of the reason why I, I look at so much of what comes out of Hollywood right now, I'd be like, this is not interesting to me because there's no tension here. It's a bunch of people who all agree with each other. And it doesn't even matter if I really agree with what you guys are saying. Like, Great art is always about exploring these. It led me opine about what great art is for a minute. <laughs> great art is always about exploring these, you know, uncomfortable places, these kind of, as the academics like to say, liminal spaces in which you don't have easy answers. And the thing that was so genius about the lesson is you're sitting there and it doesn't matter if you're hardcore left, hardcore right. Just when you think like, oh my God, this person's awful and making awful arguments, comes a moment that totally makes you see the humanity and the beauty and sometimes the validity, if not of their arguments and certainly of, of their actions. And it's really kind of mind-blowing. It's true. I mean, if you think about Fauda, right, which, of course, you know, Jerome Bendevito plays the, the teacher in this show. He's he's Steve, or as I call him, Stiv, Stiv. Huh. But as we find out, his real name is Herzl. That show is literally about the conflict, right? And about just like the danger and the stress and the drama and the anxiety and the interconnectedness and everyone likes to watch it, right? Wasn't it like the number one show in Lebanon when it came, the latest season came out on Netflix? And you're like, by not shying away from the the realities, you're right, they are kind of making this like very badass art that allows us to see something new and to talk about it. And even like this conversation, which is why I was really excited to have it, which was, I can see those kids having those different opinions, super, as my, as my Israeli uh, nieces and nephews say, super righty and lefty. Those things play out in a context that is like very, very, very near the edge of conflagration at any moment. And so I think you're right, Josh, there is something kind of magic that happens when you can take this high octane environment and like translate it into art. So when this gets made in America, it'll be Joshua Molina as the teacher, Selena Gomez as the student. One hopes. <laughs> That's amazing. And we just have to say, we haven't talked about Maya Lonsman, the actress who plays Jan. She's so good. You get that same like insecure, but deeply confident, like the confidence of insecurity in a weird mm -hmm. way that like feels so real and so teenage. Yeah, it's a very layered, very real performance. Some of us never let go of this uh, teenage insecurity. I could still connect to that to that guy, to Mohawk guy, like no problem. We need to see a picture. Oh, clearly, can we share a picture on the site? It ain't pretty. Can we change our logo to that photo? I uh, <laughs> I think it'll probably be legal in about seven states, but I can. And you know. was it truly a Mohawk or a Fohawk? 
Oh no no it was it was truly a mohawk. You shaved uh, the sides truly. I did everything Kavod. I could. Yeah, to to show people that I was very cool and very not like them and a total nonconformist. And totally didn't try hard except in how hard you tried to do all of those things. Totally. <laughs> you can stream The Lesson exclusively on Highflix. C H A I F L I C K S. And you can get 40% off your new subscription by using the code LESSONPOD at checkout. And you should. And if you like it, after watching, hop on threads <laughs> and talk about it. <laughs> yeah, hit us up on threads. We'll all be talking about it there. Can't wait to hear what everyone thinks. Let us know. We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Our first guest today is Dikla Kedar. She's the writer and creator of The Lesson. She joins us to tell us a little bit more about the process of creating the show and what she's experienced since the show has been out. Dikla, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you for hosting me. Let me tell you that I, I thought the show was an absolute fucking masterpiece. Thank you. And so now I want to know. I, I clearly identified a million and one different threads, hot off the presses of, of, of Israeli headlines, of news stories that happened in Israel in the last two years. But you did something that wasn't just a kind of, you know, Ramana Clef, not just a sort of like, oh, a thinly disguised news story. It's a very complicated and, and like incredibly tense. By the way, this felt to me more tense than Fauda which is amazing for a show that's just a couple of people talking in, in a high school. Like, I don't know how you did that, but how did this come about in your mind? What was the inspiration here for this piece? Well, first inspiration was, I didn't know it is, it's going to be an inspiration. It was a real story that happened in 2014 in Israel. A 12th grade uh, student that she posted uh, about her teacher, which was a very radical left wing, uh, had uh, very radical opinions. And she said that he should not teach, but it was not an inspiration for me for the story. It was inspiration for me because I was like that student. I was in the other side of the map, political map. 
But I was a very problematic uh, student. I was the one that came to the principal and said, uh, this teacher should not teach and, uh, you know, he should be fired. But uh, I was a student in the 80s and the 90s. Nobody was, was listening to me. And that teacher, the one she posted, he was suspended. And I was thinking if it's a fantasy or is it a nightmare that came true for her? I thought, what would happen uh, to me if... If someone uh, would listen to me and suspend or fire the teacher that I uh, was going and said, you know, for me, I felt a lot of empathy for her. Now, hold on. I'm, I'm going to interrupt you right here because the empathy that you felt for her is evident. By the way, she is the closest fictional portrayal to me that I've ever seen in my life. Also, wow. I grew up that kid from the other end of the political spectrum, very much on the left, but it was like amazing to me to watch. But here's the amazing thing. You also feel a lot of empathy for the teacher, and you also feel a lot of empathy for Zev, the principal. You even feel empathy for like her really, truly awful mother. Like There's really, truly not an unlikable character in this whole thing. So how do you kind of expand yourself to, to see the points of view of all these divergent characters in this story? I think all the unlikable characters are me. <laughs> I'm a very unlikable person. <laughs> But my personal challenge in my writing is to understand him and uh, to understand her, even if it's only emotionally or intellectually. My challenge was I could not decide for the audience who is right or who is wrong. And I wanted to to feel that I myself can identify with everything that happens. Even if I don't agree, I can understand why he says things, why he behaves. I think that what the most interesting for me in life and in people is to understand why people behave the way they behave. And yet I've read somewhere, I think in another interview, that you said you weren't interested in making the point that reality is complicated. Given how nuanced the characters in the situation are, I'm curious to know more about what you meant by that statement. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, the director, Aitan Su, which is an amazing person. And uh, when he was uh, reading my story, first time we met, he told me, so tell me, what uh, what do you want to say in all this story? And I said, I hate this question. <laughs> Whenever people ask me, what do I want to say? I suddenly feel that I have to say something so smart and so sophisticated and so meaningful. And that's make me, you know, be so stupid. So I don't want to say anything. I just want to be honest when I am writing and that's it. So he told me, okay, I don't want this story, this series to say that uh, reality is uh, complicated. Reality in Israel is not complicated. There is a side that is wrong. There is a side that is right. I'm not interested in that kind of story. So I said to him, I'm not interested as well in saying that reality is complicated. The way I say it and when I expose my own opinions. And I wanted to take it, you know, the, the, the farthest I can go with it. And I think that, that I agree. I agree that reality is not complicated and I know who's right and wrong. But uh, in the series, in the story, it's only, you know, the last episode that uh, I expose what I think. I think that uh, reality is not complicated when words becoming an action and when ideas are making, you know, people change. What were the responses like? Did anything happen that really kind of catch you off guard? 
the most surprising reactions are for things that I wasn't prepared and things that happens without intention and are very fascinating, like a therapist. She emailed me that she had a session with a, a 16-year-old girl, teenager, and that her um, father is suffering from PTSD after uh, the war. She told me that when they saw the episode with the TV interview of Liana Namil, that was the first time that she saw her father cry. It was the first time that they could talk about what he's been through in, in the war and what made him suffer from, you know, this post-traumatic uh, disorder. And uh, it was amazing. This is a reaction that, you know, I could never imagine that uh, I could get. The entire series is beautifully acted. It's an incredible cast. And I was sort of, I was blown away to discover that Maya Lanzman, who plays Leon, is 29 years old. Yeah. It's, she's such a convincing 12th grader. It's, an, it's actually quite an amazing <laughs> performance. How did you find her for the series? It's funny because um, she said that uh, she's just going, she's like Benjamin Button. She's uh, she started the, <laughs> her first role was uh, in uh, the other show Unforgetted, which is she's in the army. Now she's 12th grade, and you know the next thing she'll, <laughs> she'll do. Be playing she'll a baby be, soon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very uh, un, not romantic explanation how we found her in Israel. We have you know low budget and not a lot of uh, shooting days. We had only 23 days uh, to shoot all the series, everything, nine days. And, you know, the the, the script person that helped uh, the director, I don't know the, the name of the professional name of this. Uh, we say a script supervisor here. Yeah. So she told, uh, she told me, you know, there is only one scene in all the series that is not with Leanne or Amir. And Ethan, uh, he just he told me that uh, it's such a big character and that he's not and so 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 not many days, no chance to to make mistakes. So he didn't want to take an actor that doesn't have experience and everything. All right, Dikla, thank you so so much for your time and for this amazing show. Thank you, thank you. Our second Jew of the week is, let me see if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Benjamin Cohen. Benjamin Cohen, our friend, he does so, so, so many things. But the most important thing is that he is Albert Einstein. At least he is Albert Einstein on social media. And his new book is The Einstein Effect, How the World's Favorite Genius Got Into Our Cars, Our Bathrooms, and Our Minds. It is such a delightful read. Straight out of West Virginia, to talk about his book, his life, and his chickens, here is our friend, Benjamin Cohen.
Binyamin Cohen, welcome back to Unorthodox. Thank you. So great to be back. So we have a lot to talk about, including your chickens, the Cohens. But before we do, you have a beautiful passage in your new book in which you say the following. Imagine you uh, wake up in the morning and you go shopping on your way out of the supermarket. The doors open automatically. Then you have an umbrella because you use your weather app to check the weather. And on your way home, you get a call from your doctor to tell you that the PET scan you had came back negative and everything's okay. And he said this scenario, which is common and something that many of us have experienced, if you've lived through any of these things, you have one man to thank for all of them. Yeah, Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein came up with all of these ideas in one year, in 1905, when he was just 26 years old. So I guess you could say he peaked early. Einstein really was on a a big hot streak that year in 1905. He came up with four revolutionary research papers that kind of upended all of science. And a lot of technologies, like you said, Leo, that we use today are direct descendants of those theories. Lasers and remote controls, and when you walk into a grocery store and the doors automatically open, all of those are all based on his theory of light, which eventually won him the, the Nobel Prize. When I think of Einstein, I think of the picture of him sticking his tongue out and being silly. Think of his hair. I think of like E equals MC squared, which I'm not entirely sure what it means. Like I know theory of relativity. I do not know more than that. What do we get wrong about him? What what should we know about him that we don't? And is that part of why you wanted to write the Einstein effect? That's exactly why I decided to write it because I was, I'm like you. I mean, I'm not a scientist. I'm just, I like to call myself a likable idiot. (laughs) I knew as much about Einstein as you did. What really got me interested was somebody told me that we have Einstein to thank for GPS That kind of sent me down a rabbit hole. And it turns out his theory of relativity is basically the foundation for GPS. And it just got me thinking, like, what other things do we have Einstein to thank for? And it's not just science or technology. There's a chapter in my book about how Einstein helped launch the International Rescue Committee, which is the largest refugee aid organization in the world. It's still operating today. Now, he he launched it in the 1930s leading up to World War II, and he was trying to save German Jews from Hitler. He actually helped resettle a bunch of German Jews to Alaska and Mexico, believe it or not. I mean, there's all these little-known stories about Einstein that people didn't know about. So I actually interviewed people today who are being rescued. I interviewed a Ukrainian refugee who told me she has Einstein to thank for saving her life at the start of the Russian war uh, last year. You know, these big stories are, of course, a major reason why your book is such a freaking pleasure to read. But my favorite, of course, were the really little things. Because I read this book, I'm like, wow, this person was absolutely insane. First of all, no socks. He was slovenly. Very slovenly. But what's the deal with the socks? He hated social niceties. He would walk around. There are stories of him walking around Princeton in his pajamas, you know, like uh, <laughs> like, a, like a Jewish Hugh Hefner. He would just be walking like before around. Before the pandemic. Right. Oh, yeah. Before it was cool. And so there's actually a chapter in the book called Einstein Life Hacks, where I try to do all of these things in my own life. And so I went to the grocery store and the doctor in my pajamas and I didn't wear socks and I didn't get a haircut. It's a great writer working from home fails to dress (laughs) up. Terrific. There's all these interesting things that people didn't know about him. When Einstein died, the pathologist who was performing the autopsy stole Einstein's brain. Sure, as one does. (laughs) As one does. I like to call it the greatest heist of the 20th century. I mean, he literally for decades kept it 
trying to do research on it to see if Einstein's brain was different than other people's brains. The Einstein family was extremely upset, as you can imagine. Where, where is the brain now? Right. So he died in 2007 and no one's been able to locate it. But I was able to find the person who has it now. And he let me come to it. He lives in Princeton. He opened up his trunk. And there in his trunk were these mason jars because it's cut up. The brain is cut up into a bunch of 200 pieces. And he let me hold the mason jars with Einstein's brain. And as, as gross as that is, you know, Einstein's brain represents. He represented, you know, empathy and kindness towards other and, and smartness. And, you know, we, we live in an age right now where everybody likes to think of themselves as an expert and everyone can be a China-Russia expert on Twitter. And Einstein, I think, stood for something a little more valuable than that. You also write movingly about his dedication to imagination, even over knowledge. Yeah, he would be the first to admit that he didn't have all the answers. His whole goal in life was really just to color outside the lines, to think outside the box, to mix all those metaphors. You know, so many scientists of his generation were just fine living with what was already passed down to them from Galileo and from previous scientists, that this is the way the universe is. And he was like, well, what if we think it's not like that? And and I think you can use that kind of mantra in your life in so many different aspects, not even if you're a scientist. We're living with, with something you might call the Einstein paradox. Right? On the one hand, as you wrote, his ubiquity has never been more pronounced. He's everywhere. On the other hand, the spirit of his, which you capture so beautifully, is almost nowhere to be seen. In fact, kind of derided by the very same people who, who purport to represent the scientific community. When we hear things like, oh no, you know, you hear someone like Fauci saying, trust the science, don't ask questions, that's bad. And in general, wonder and imagination don't really get a lot of play. And, and most experts that you interact with in the public sphere say, well, you should shut up and listen to me because I got a PhD from this university. How do you explain that? Well, I think you're right. Einstein is at this unique place of scientist and celebrity where everybody feels a connection to him, whether or not, like Stephanie said, whether or not people actually understand his science. And I think probably more people connect with him who don't understand his science. You know, when people used to visit him, he, the first thing he, he would do when you walked into his house was he would give you like a little toy puzzle. He always wanted people to just kind of make their brains elastic and just to start thinking more. And people connect with him on so many different ways. You know, like you said, he's in pop culture. He's in, in Spider-Man. There's a there's an Einstein poster on the wall. And he, he's in advertising. And he's on coffee mugs. And he's on T-shirts. And I, I think everybody can find their own way to connect with Einstein. And I think he would appreciate that. It's so funny imagining nothing more stressful than walking into Einstein's house and being handed a fun little puzzle <laughs> and being like, Dinner's in 10 minutes. Figure out how to do as much as you can. But Benjamin, you know, you talk about all of us having these connections to Einstein. You have a fascinating connection because for many years now, you've been the official voice of Einstein on social media. So can you remind us how one gets that job, what qualifications are required, and what you've learned as a result? I had to take a physics test. No, I, I, um, <laughs> Einstein, yeah. Einstein has 20 million followers across Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Einstein has more Facebook fans than Tom Hanks. He's one of the few dead celebrities who's active on social media. I've been obsessed with Einstein since college, and I, I'm a journalist, and I write a lot about Einstein. So, you know, anytime Einstein's in the news, whether it's science-related, like there's a new discovery based on Einstein's research, or if, like, a couple years ago, some of Einstein's papers were being auctioned off for millions of dollars. and So I would just keep writing. I have a Google alert set up for Einstein. I kept writing a lot of articles, and eventually the Einstein estate reached out to me and they're like, hey, we're looking for someone <laughs> to run his social media. You see we'll him. hand you a puzzle and we'll <laughs> check back in 10 minutes. Yes. I mean, it's an awesome responsibility in a certain sense. I'm speaking for one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. And 
I get nervous sometimes when I'm posting to his social media because it's like on my phone, like his Instagram is right next to my Instagram. And I'm afraid if I post a picture <laughs> of my chickens, I might accidentally post it. <laughs> to, to <laughs> you could get Einstein canceled. <laughs> I, exactly. Exactly. Are you ever tempted to abuse this awesome power? Like saying, you know what? I'm going to go on Einstein's official account and say, the best diet soda is Diet Dr. Pepper. I'm Einstein. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> I'm so decreed. As long as you put paid ad in parentheses, right. I you think know? you're good. <laughs> well, I don't want to get fired from the job. <laughs> so there was one time where we kind of got ourselves in a little bit of, not heat, but we got ourselves in the headlines. A few years ago, Ivanka Trump posted an Einstein quote to her Twitter page. Problem being that he hadn't said it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, there are so many incorrect Einstein quotes out there. And so we posted a comment saying, uh, actually, Ivanka, I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it kind of made international headlines, you know. Actually, I'm Ivanka, that was that idiot Enrico Fermi who said that <laughs> shit. <laughs> we, so this is so funny because we, we do talk about the like, if not now, when people like someone attributed yeah. that to the actress Emma Watson at one point. Like, what are some <laughs> of the most misquoted Einsteins? And how do you determine whether or not he ever said them? So the one that I think comes up the most is people like, you know, doing the same thing over over and over again is the definition of insanity. Yeah. Einstein never said that. So when I started the job, the Einstein estate gave me a book. It's like 800 pages. It's like the official book of Einstein quotes, and it's divided oh my, into- that's amazing. It's divided into three sections. Actual things Einstein said, things Einstein might have said, and things Einstein certainly did not say. And so I actually have a digital copy of that on my computer, and I could quickly like do a search to see. You're like, <laughs> let's go Mets. No, Einstein never said that. We might have. <laughs> This book is so entertaining, but this is actually not your day job. You're the news director at The Forward, and you're podcasting over there as well, right? Yeah. yeah. We're, we're learning, trying to learn from the OGs. You guys have about eight, eight years ahead of us. But we recently launched our own podcast called That Jewish News Show. <laughs> we couldn't think of a name, so we just called it That Jewish News Show. And it's been going on for a month or two now. I understand it's been endorsed by Albert Einstein. That's right. Yes, he Albert called it Einstein. brilliant. <laughs> exactly. Better than anything I had ever done, Albert Einstein. <laughs> Best podcast I've ever listened to, said Albert Einstein. But it comes out on Thursday nights, so people can listen to Unorthodox Thursday mornings. And then if they can't find something else to listen to, they can listen to us. We actually have a great guest. I'm really excited this week. We are interviewing Dr. Ruth in honor of her 95th birthday. Fantastic. Amazing. Before we let you go, can you tell us about the Cohens? Yes, the Cohens are a flock of chickens, which we adoringly call the Cohens. Each one is named after an NPR newscaster. So we have uh, <laughs> Terry Gross, uh, Melissa Block. Our one rooster we call Kai Rizdal. We actually made one exception. We do have a bird that has a big white pompadour of a hairdo, and we actually call her Alberta Einstein. Oh, very nice. She has her own Instagram, too, Alberta Einstein the Hold Chicken. Hold on, going to follow. I, I just want to say that Albert Einstein has regrammed Alberta Einstein the Chicken. Yes. Um, I don't know who did it. I don't oh, know. Oh, some log rolling. Being held in a in an Albert Einstein tote. Amazing. Um, hold on. I'm following everyone involved in this, in this all, equation. All the chickens. <laughs> The Cohens also have their own Instagram account at Pugs and Chickens. So you're just running social media for, for live animals and dead... And dead celebrities. <laughs> celebrities all day long. Dead Nobel Prize winners, yes. That's amazing. Well, thank you for all the important work you do. The book is The Einstein Effect, How the World's Favorite Genius Got Into Our Cars, Our Bathrooms, and Our Minds. The author, the tweeter, the Instagrammer is Benjamin Cohen. It is so fun to chat with you. Thanks for coming back to Unorthodox. Thanks for having me on. Great to see you guys. Thank you.
And in lieu of Mazel Tovs this week, Liel, take us out with a fond farewell. Sunrise and sadly, sunset. Sheldon Harnick, the lyricist of the beloved classic Fiddler on the Roof, leaves us at 99 years old. Baruch Dayan Hamid. By the way, I would be remiss if I didn't mention here that my father, Robert Molina, was one of the co-producers of Bach and Harnick's lesser known, but also excellent musical, The Rothschilds, which uh, was on Broadway in the early 70s and which was nominated for a Tony. Did the theater suspiciously burn down just before? uh... Oh, it was a classic (laughs) Jewish lightning situation. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. Hire him. He is always on time and he always knows his lines. I have a window of professional availability between now and my death. So get on it. <laughs> we are produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Daron Risquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Get your Unorthodox merch at tabletstudios.com. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem. Find us all across social media. Even on threads. Even on threads. Go old-fashioned. Send us an email at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or leave a message on our listener line at 914-570-4869. If you want to send us snail mail, P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. That's it for today. Shalom, friends. It'll be very funny if the Rothschild had a song, If I Were a Tevya, because um, you know that in Hebrew, <laughs> If I Were a Rich Man is If I Were a Rothschild. Oh, I didn't know that. That's the, those, the original song, right? And those then it are was the Israeli lyrics. Yeah. I actually am pretty happy that got changed, just because I feel like for some reason the Rothschilds have this larger than life uh, <laughs> hold on popular culture. Fair enough.